The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Uh, appreciate you being here this morning. We are actually going back this morning to our study in 1 John, and we're going to continue this uh, great little epistle of 1 John. We left off, I don't know, three months ago. We just had just finished chapter 4, so we're going to start with chapter 5. And what I want to do for this week and next week is the first half of chapter five, uh, verse 1. Okay? And you'll hopefully understand that as we go along, but this verse, chapter 5, verse 1, teaches us something very important about the doctrine of soteriology. Now, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Now, I want to ask my Arminian brothers and sisters to, don't shut me off, okay, listen, be a Berean, hear what I have to say, and if you want to confront me on some issues, please do, and we'll talk about it. But uh, this, is, this is an important, important area that I think we need to understand, because within evangelical churches, there's an ongoing debate, has always been going on, in this issue of salvation. And the issue is, is salvation by a choice of man's free will, or is it God's sovereign choice? Somebody's choosing. Who is it? You or God? And boy, this is a hot, this is a heated issue, okay? This verse in 1 John adds significantly to the debate. It really does, and that's why I want to spend some time here this morning. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Now, for some reason... Even the New American Standard Bible, which is usually quite literal, obscures the sense of the Greek verb in verse 1. The English Standard Version translates this correctly. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. Now, the tenses here are very important. And they don't come out that clearly in the English translation. So, just bear with me for a minute here as we look at these. John uses the present tense... Everyone who believes. Meaning, everyone who is presently believing in Yeshua has been born of God. Now, has been born of God is a perfect tense, which all Greek students know generally refers to an event in the past time, the results of which persist in the present time. So we have a present tense, and we have a perfect tense. And the perfect tense would indicate that that represented by the perfect tense is an event that occurred previously to the other. The tenses make it clear that the divine begetting is the antecedent, not the consequent, of believing. Has been born of God is a perfect passive indicative conveying a settled condition, listen, brought about by an outside agent. That agent is Yahweh. So let me state it like this. Everyone who is presently believing in Christ has been in the past born of God. This verse teaches that faith is the result and the evidence of being born again. Not that being born again is the result of faith. So this verse teaches us that birth precedes believing. That should make sense, right? You can't believe something until you've been born, right? You, come on, you're with me on that much at least, right? You've got to be born, then you can believe, alright? According to what this verse is teaching, the majority of the church, and I do mean majority, has their soteriology wrong. One commentator writes this, We are born of God when we put our trust on Jesus and on His saving work in our lives. So in other words, in his view, you believe, God gives you new life because you believe. Alright, another commentator. 
To be born of God, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Same thing. Okay, I got to believe this, and when I believe it, God says, that was good here. You can have life. John Stott, commenting on this verse, gets it right. He says, it shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause, of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain God's children. Okay, amen. I think he gets that right. He said they've been they're born of God. Now, born of God is from the verb ganao. And it means to father, to beget. Here it means to be fathered by God and thus to be a child of God. And this is what Yeshua calls being born again. Now, the idea of being born again is a very familiar concept to believers, right? At least the terminology is very familiar, although I don't think most people understand this. Because you hear people say, I'm a born-again Christian, right? You heard that? Is there other kinds of Christians? I think what we mean by that, you know, everybody says they're a Christian, so to distinguish us as the real Christians, we say, I'm a born-again Christian. That's redundant, people. To be born again is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be born again. All right, But I understand why we do that. It's like I'm the real deal. Okay, I've been born Christian, not just believing I'm a Christian. All right, To be born again is to be a Christian. All right. Now, the term born again is synonymous with regeneration. So being born again is the same thing that Ezekiel 36.26 calls receiving a new heart. Or what Ephesians 2 calls being made alive. 1 Peter calls it being called out of darkness into His marvelous light. All of these terms refer to what theologians call regeneration. Now, Hodge, Charles Hodge says that regeneration is the instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regeneration, therefore, is a spiritual resurrection the beginning of a new life. Charles Thiessen says, regeneration may be defined as the communication of divine life to the soul, as the impartation of a new nature or heart and the production of a new creation. Now, within the church, there are many different views of regeneration. The Pelagian view, you maybe have heard of that, says that regeneration is a moral transformation. It's a work of man. Most liberals today hold this view. It was condemned by the church in the Council of Ephesus in 431. Practically, the Pelagian says, I can save myself by my works. Adam was the first Pelagian. He tried to cover his sins with fig leaves. God had to provide a sacrifice for him and clothe him and Eve with Skins to picture the righteousness of Christ. Now, the Catholic view says that regeneration is accomplished by baptism. That is a fundamental doctrine of the Catholic faith. I remember the first time at a, being at a Catholic funeral and the priest so emphasizing, we know this man is in heaven. We know this man is in heaven. Why? Because he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. No. Why? He was baptized. He was baptized. So he's going to heaven. So they believe it is a work of man through a divine ordinance. Now, people, the Church of Christ also holds the view of baptismal regeneration. Alright? And it's just wrong, okay? It's just wrong. Now, the Arminian view is called the semi-Pelagian view, semi-Pelagianism. And regeneration, they believe, is not exclusively God or man's work. It's the fruit of man's choice to cooperate with the divine influences. So they teach that the work of man, a decision to trust Christ, is prior to the work of God. Now this view is held by most evangelicals, alright, today. didn't used to be that way, but that's today. In the Reformation, no one held this view. Now, almost everyone does. They believe it was necessary for them, in an act of their own will, to cooperate with the grace found in the preaching of the Word of God. And then, there's the position that I hold here at Berean Bible Church called Calvinistic, Reformed, whatever you want to call it. 
It teaches that regeneration is of the Lord. In other words, God made us alive who were dead. God made us willing who were unwilling. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God according to the Reformed view. It's all about God. Now, the basic debate in the church is between Calvinism and Arminianism. And those who hold to the Pelagian or Catholic view are not even Christians, all right? Because they don't believe that Christ saved them. They saved themselves through an ordinance, all right? They're not trusting Christ. Calvinism proclaims a God who saves, while Arminianism speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. One makes salvation depend on the work of God, the other on the work of man. One regards faith as part of God's gift of salvation, the other as man's contribution to salvation. One gives all the glory to God in salvation. The other divides the praise between God, who built the machinery of salvation, and man, who by believing, operates it. Now, John mentions being born again in our text. In 1 John, he mentions it nine times. And the best explanation of what it means is to be found in two places in the fourth gospel. Now, remember, John wrote the gospel of John, John Eleazar, Lazarus, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. Alright, so we go back to the Gospel, which was written specifically to tell men how to come to faith in Christ, and look at what he has to say about being born again. So let's look at those texts and see if it, 1st John 5.1, you know, if we're just going to hang in the language here, the language is very clear, okay? If you believe, the reason you believe is because you've been born again. Does the rest of the New Testament bear that out? Let's look and see. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, the antecedent of who here is those who believe in Yeshua's name in verse 12. All who received Him, who believed in His name. These people who believed in His name were born of God. So John defines the supernatural birth into divine sonship in a negative by listing three things that it's not part of, alright? Here's how you don't get born again. It's not of blood. Literally, the text reads, who were born not of bloods, plural. Probably indicates the two parents necessary for a human birth. And this verse is emphasized that the birth of the children of God is not through a normal physical process. Alright, that's not how it happens. He says, nor of the will of the flesh. This refers to human sexual impulse. Not born by human sexual impulse. The flesh cannot produce children of God. The flesh produces flesh. And crossing the boundary from the world's realm to God's realm is only possible by divine agency. And then he says, nor of the will of man. Now the word that John uses here for man is andros, which speaks of male, not the genetic term for mankind. This word is often translated as husband. And get this, the NIV interpreted it properly here, as husband. Okay, Even a blind dog stumbles on a bone once in a while. Okay, That's the nearly inspired version. Okay, They got it right. They said husband, and that's helpful here. Because this probably refers to the father's authority in deciding to have a child. Spiritual life doesn't come because of a human decision. This verse actually ends with born of God, which is echo theos ganao. This is what we have in our text in 1 John 5.1. Same thing. The Greek verb ganao is an aorist passive indicative and is placed last in the Greek sentence for emphasis. This emphasizes the initiating and sovereign role of God in the new birth. Now, do you remember what Yeshua said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? A study of 1 John 3, where Yeshua uses this term, born again, I think gives us a good understanding of what this regeneration is and what all. So let's look at that text and John 3, 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Alright, as a Pharisee, as a ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin and teacher, Nicodemus represented the essence of Judaism at that time. This is a formidable man in the religious system of Israel. In fact, he may have been one of the most 
formidable Pharisees of his day. Because in verse 10, Yeshua says, Are you the, definite article, the teacher of Israel? So he's kind of reached the pinnacle of Judaism. He's the teacher. He's a leading man in apostate Judaism. And he comes to the Lord. So this man came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. Now, since night and darkness in the fourth gospel symbolize the realm of evil, untruth, and ignorance, it's unlikely that Lazarus tells us this just as some detail, okay? Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, was himself in darkness, okay? Now, here's a man who's a member of the most hostile, the most aggressive, the most angry, the most hateful enemies that Yeshua had on earth, the Pharisees. And he's saying... We know that you're a teacher come from God. How do they know that? Because the things you're doing, nobody can just do those things, okay? Raising the dead, giving sight to people, walking on water, transporting boats from one from the sea to the shore. He was doing things that Nicodemus at least was smart enough to realize that you got to be sent from God to do this stuff, all right? So his courtesy to the Lord and his lack of hostility mark him as a Non-typical Pharisee. Verse 3 says, Yeshua answered him. Now, what was the question? Did you see a question? Let's go back. See if you can find the question. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Yeshua by night and he said, so here's his words, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. What's the question? There's no question, okay? Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He made a declaration, a confession. He didn't yet ask it, but Yeshua answers it before he can ask it. He just said, we know you come from God because you can't do these things unless God is with them. Then he says, answers his question. That's pretty cool because I didn't ask it yet, okay? I didn't even ask it. The implied question would be something like this. How may I enter the kingdom of God? How can I have eternal life? That was his question. And Yeshua answers it before he even asks it. Okay? He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the word born here is our word ganao. The normal word for being born. The word translated again is anathen which has a double meaning. And this is important here, people. Onathan can be translated again, or can be translated from above. I think it would have been better if they had translated it from above. Now, the primary meaning intended by Yeshua here is probably from above. This phrase points to God as the source and origin of the birth. Unless you're born, because you're not going to be born again. You know what I mean? I was born, I can't be born again. That's Nicodemus is all confused on this. He took the wrong meaning. This points to God as the source. Now, to strengthen this idea, Yeshua uses a passive voice in born, which means he's declaring the necessity of a condition that someone else must bring about on our behalf. This has to happen to you, but somebody else has to do it to you is the idea. The passive voice expresses the subject being acted upon. So Yeshua told Nicodemus, you cannot birth yourself spiritually so that you enter the kingdom. Someone else must birth you, and apart from the new birth, you can't enter the kingdom. Now the whole point of the analogy of being born from above is to demonstrate that Yeshua is saying something has to happen to you that you can't do. You can't contribute to it in any way. We made no contribution to our physical birth. Everybody would agree with that, right? Didn't decide when to be born, how to be born, male, female, haircut. You didn't do anything, all right? It just happened to you. That's why the Lord chooses this analogy. Because we make no contribution to our spiritual birth. That bothers people. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about my choice? God's making a choice here, okay? And He chooses to be you be part of His family. That's what happens. We don't make a contribution. No one gives himself or herself physical life. And no one 
by any means gives himself or herself spiritual life. That's why it's so important to understand what the Scripture says about us being dead in trespasses and sins. If you're dead, what do you do? You don't do anything, okay? And it's not like Princess Bride, mostly dead and somewhat alive. No, you're just dead. Dead, dead, okay? That's the whole point. Spiritual birth or regeneration is the work of God in salvation. Without a birth from above, Yeshua says, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, to see the kingdom of God and the phrase in verse 5 that we'll see, to enter the kingdom, both mean to experience the kingdom. Yeshua uses the term see here in the sense of experience, encounter, participate in. Now, why does a man have to be born from above? Well, he has to be born from above because the condition of humanity demands it according to Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, most people take dead here as to mean really sick. Okay? That's not, it's not really sick, though. You've already passed away. You're gone. You're dead. And this is talking about spiritually. It's talking about your relationship with God. You're dead to that. All right? Fallen man, and fallen man is every man who was ever born, fallen man in his natural state lacks all ability to commune with God because he's spiritually dead. And apart from the new birth, he cannot understand spiritual things. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. You know, that you try to share the gospel with people and they're like, ah, that's crazy, I'm not interested in that. They just don't get it. They're folly to him. That's foolishness. And watch this. He is not able to understand them. It's not just that he's unwilling, he's unable. Because they're spiritually discerned. Well, the key to understanding this here, who is the natural person here? The word natural is sukakos. Jude uses the same Greek term, translated natural here. Jude translates it worldly in Jude 19. And Jude says this, worldly people, sukkakos people, devoid of the Spirit. So the natural man is the man without the Spirit of God. He's natural. He has no spiritual capacity. The new birth or regeneration is absolutely necessary Because apart from it, man has no ability to understand or desire the things of God. I think the best way to explain this is like, this room is filled with radio waves. Can anybody tell me what's playing on uh, 104 right now? Why not? Why can't you pick it up? Because you don't have a receiver, right? You need a receiver to get that? It's the same thing spiritually. Alright, unless you have the receiver, which is the Holy Spirit, all this stuff is just foolishness to you. Don't care about it, it's ridiculous. You're unable to understand the things of God. You just don't have the ability because you need a new birth. In verse 4 he says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? (laughs) Nicodemus, really? You know, he's being really smart aleck here, okay? He's being sarcastic. Oh, do I got to crawl back in my mother? He he knows this is not what he's talking about, but he interprets onathan to mean born again, just like we talked about. It has a double meaning. It can mean again or can mean from above, and he takes the again meaning. I guess I got to be born again. He didn't understand what Yeshua was talking about at all. And at this point, He could not believe the new birth was a requirement for entrance into the kingdom, and he's so amazed by the very thought of it. His response is marked by unbelief, which prompts him to reply with a crassly, literistic interpretation of what Yeshua said. In other words, he's just expressing a degree of scorn, like, that's crazy. He knew he couldn't crawl back in his mother's womb. So Yeshua answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus' misunderstanding leads Yeshua to explain his point again, but a slightly different way. Let me, let me try to say that a different way so you can get it. All right? He says, unless one is born of water and spirit, which is just a different way of saying 
born again, born from above. In verse 3, here Yeshua says he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 3, Yeshua says he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what he's saying in verse 5 was something that Nicodemus should understand. Let me say this in a different way so you'll get it. Now there's a lot of controversy today over what Yeshua meant by born of water and spirit. Anytime you find water in the Bible, people gotta go to baptism. Okay? They just, I don't care where, what, any text with water, it's, oh, that's a baptism. Well, the definite article here translated the before spirit is absent in the Greek text. The English translators have interpreted it to clarify their interpretation of spirit, pneuma, as Holy Spirit. Some commentators take water as an allusion to water baptism. Alright? And the Spirit referring to the Holy Spirit. So according to this view, spiritual birth happens only when a person undergoes water baptism. And the result, they experience regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So all you got to do is get them in the tank. Right? And this is what the Church of Christ believes. And listen, this is why the Church of Christ, I don't care where, when, how, if you, if they're sharing the Gospel with you and you say you believe, they're going to drag you to the church instantly. Okay, I mean, it's not like next Sunday we're having a baptism. No, right now, because that's the only way you're going to get saved. You've got to get in that water. That's very important to them. They can't wait. This would mean that regeneration was a result of man performing a ritual. Now, in considering audience relevance, Christian baptism would have had no significance for Nicodemus. Okay, you get that, right? Audience relevance. We're talking about Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus know about Christian baptism? Nothing, all right? He knew nothing of Christian baptism. Nothing of Christian or baptism as far as Christian baptism goes, all right? And it's interesting that Yeshua never mentions water baptism again in trying to clarify this to Nicodemus. Well, another view proposed by many scholars is that water is an allusion to the amniotic fluid in which the fetus develops in the mother's womb. Other scholars see it as a euphemistic reference to semen, without which natural birth is impossible. And a lot of rabbinic literature would refer to male semen as water, rain, or dew, similar terms like that. So this interpretation understands water to refer to normal physical birth, which is common to everybody, and the spirit to refer to the spiritual birth, which is essentially life in the kingdom. This view assumes that two births are in view, whereas the construction in the Greek phrase favors one birth rather than two. If two were in view, there would normally be a repetition of the preposition before the second noun. Also, the entire expression of water and spirit is the equivalent of onothen from above. So if there's a genuine parallelism between verse 3 and verse 5, and this agrees, you know, argues to the expression that taken as a reference to both. They're both saying the same thing. So we have to, this has to connect with born from above, water in the Spirit. Now, let's think logically for a second here. He comes, you know, Nicodemus like, hey, how do I get in the kingdom? How do I get born again? Well, you got to be born once first, Nicodemus, physically, and then you got to be born again. And would there be a point in telling him you have to be born once? I mean, he's talking to him, okay? He obviously was born. And you can't tell anybody that's not born that you have to be born. He's there. What is the point? You've got to be born once, then you can be born twice. If you haven't been born once, you can't get born. Well, I don't... <laughs> it's just ridiculous, people. But, you know, we have to think, all right? If they're hearing Yeshua speak, we can assume they've been born already physically. The Pillar New Testament commentary states this very well. The most plausible interpretation of born of water and spirit turns on three factors. First, the expression is parallel to from above, anothen. And so only one birth is in view. Second, the preposition of governs both water and spirit. The most natural way of taking this construction is to see the phrase as a conceptual unity. There's a water-spirit source, and he's quoting from Murray Harris there, that stands as the origin of this regeneration. Third, Jesus berates Nicodemus for not understanding these things in his role as Israel's teacher, a senior professor of the Scriptures 
And this, in turn, suggests we must turn to what Christians call the Old Testament to begin to discern what Yeshua had in mind. All right? Yes. We had to, okay, he's coming about this something he should know. Where should he know it from? From the Tanakh. See, Judaism expected the kingdom of God to be the age of the Spirit. And the pouring out of the Spirit of God was an important part of Old Covenant expectations for the Messianic age. Look at Ezekiel 36, 24-27. God is talking to Israel. says, I will take you from the nations. They've been scattered. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. There's a cleansing taking place. Now, God wasn't going to literally soak them. It's a picture of cleansing. From all your uncleanness, I'm going to clean you. And from all your idols, I'm going to cleanse you. Now, you can't wash away idolatry with water. Alright, so he's talking about a spiritual cleansing here. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a spirit, a new spirit, I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now here, the water and the spirit come together. The first to signify cleansing from impurity, the second to depict the transformation of heart that will enable the people of God to follow God. So the revelation that Yahweh would bring cleansing and renewal as water by means of the Spirit was clear in the Tanakh. Yeshua evidently meant that unless a person has experienced the spiritual cleansing and renewal from the Spirit of Yahweh, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, as I said earlier, the construction of the phrase in the Greek text indicates that the preposition of governs both water and spirit. This means that Yeshua was clarifying regeneration by using two terms that both describe the new birth. He was not saying that two separate things have to be present for regeneration to happen. Then he says in 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Alright? The two words here are being contrasted. Flesh and spirit. In the Greek, sarx versus pneuma. Now, in Paul's letters, he often contrasts these two words, but in the fourth gospel, this is the only time the contrast appears. So, what's the context of flesh here? Well, it's not sinful, it's just human frailty. Until now, man has only thought in terms of birth in human terms. The seed of man bears children. Man is begotten by the seed of a human father, and he becomes flesh when he's born in the kingdom of the world. But Yeshua tells Nicodemus that a man can enter the kingdom of God only when he's born of the Heavenly Father. Born from above. Earthly life comes to man from an earthly father. Eternal life comes from the Eternal Father. So Yeshua is saying, no longer is being in covenant with God a question of being born into the physical line of Abraham. That's what the Jews would have believed. But being born from above is through the action of the Holy Spirit by means of the life-giving water to become a child of God. Look at Romans 8, 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Natural man, he can't please God because he's dead. All right. You, however, writing to believers, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit because you're Christians. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says this, Anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not God's. But those in the flesh can't please God. So let me ask you this. Does faith please God? It's not a trick question. It's not a trick question. Faith pleases God, right? It does. But those who are in the flesh can't please God. So... Can those in the flesh exercise faith? No, because that would please God. And they can't please God because they're in the flesh. So they can't do anything. It's kind of taking everything away from man. It's just all about God, okay? All about God. Salvation is all about God. When we realize that, he gets a lot of glory, okay? Because it's about him. The man who's in the flesh can't please God. What does he need? He needs an operation of God 
the Holy Spirit by which He's taken out of the flesh and then put in the Spirit. Given life. Now this would have all been very difficult for Nicodemus to grasp. He viewed acceptance by God like so many of his Jewish contemporaries did. He thought that his heritage, his ancestry, his position, his works, all made him what he was. And he thought that made him adequate to get into the kingdom of God. That made him acceptable to God. I'm a Jew. I have the ancestry. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a rabbi. I've got great standing before God. No. He had to realize that he needed a complete spiritual cleansing and renewal that only God could provide by the Spirit. And likewise today, most people are relying on themselves. What they do. Ask people that. Listen, if you were to die right now and stand before God in heaven and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell them? Boy, you get some answers. Well, look, I went to church, well, sometimes. I, I gave some once in a while. I mean, I, I, I'm a good person. They'll start listing off a list. And when you do that, eh, the only correct answer is, I've trusted in your son. That's the only right answer. Why should I let you into heaven? Because I trusted the provision you made for me. Because anything else is self-effort. But most of Christianity today is trying to please God by the things they do. And they're doing a lousy job at it. Okay? A lousy job at it. I mean, just examining yourself, you should know that, well, I'm not doing too well here. Okay, can't do too well. 3.7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The word translated again here is anathen, above or again, from above or again. Nicodemus shouldn't have been amazed at the idea that there was a spiritual birth in addition to the physical birth since the Tanakh spoke of this. Ezekiel 36, 25, 28, we looked at that. There's also an, also an intertestamental reference from Jubilees, 125, that says this, I will create in them a Holy Spirit, and I will cleanse them. I will be their father, and they shall be my children. Now the Essenes of Qumran wrote in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that God would cleanse man of all his wicked deeds by means of a Holy Spirit. Like purifying waters, he will sprinkle upon him the Spirit of truth. So they understood this cleansing to be a work of the Spirit. This was a revelation that most of the Jews in Yeshua's day, including Nicodemus, missed. They just missed it. In verse 7, he says, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In this text, the first you is singular, referring to Nicodemus, but the second you is plural, referring to the general principle that's applicable to all human beings. And the word must here is from the Greek verb day, which is a present active indicative, which literally means it's necessary. It denotes things that must occur for the plan of God to move forward. You must. It's a necessity. There's no way around this. You must be born from above. Now watch what he says in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone born of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting here is both the Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma mean breath, wind, or spirit. Though in the New Testament, any meaning other than spirit is rare. Now, this is a clever play on both meanings of the word pneuma in this passage. And the biblical scholars point out that we don't get the same sense in the English. All right, the word wind and the word spirit, they're the same Greek word, pneuma. So he's got to play on words here. The wind blows, you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. Well, it's the same with the spirit, pneuma, same word. There's also word play in the use of the word sound here. You hear the sound of it is literally the voice of it. The word play suggests that the sound of the wind, but the voice of the spirit. And this coming of the Holy Spirit is not something that can be explained by man. And yet it happens. You know, the wind can't be seen, but its sound can be heard. You can see its effects. The Spirit can't be seen, but the Spirit's voice is heard in the hearts of those who have been regenerated, given a new birth. Now, what are the similarities here between wind and Spirit? Well, first of all, 
Both the Spirit and the wind operate sovereignly. Man does not and cannot control either one of them. Okay? I know Bill Gates is trying to control the weather, but can't control the wind. All right? Second, we perceive the presence of both by their effects. Third, we cannot explain their actions since they arise from unseen and particularly unknowable factors. They're mysterious. So he's making it clear that the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. And when you are born again, you are born by the Spirit. This new spiritual life comes in the new birth through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is clear, I think, in John 6, where Yeshua says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You're not going to get anything out of the flesh. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and their life. So the new birth and the new life that comes with it is the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't cause the Spirit to bring about the new birth any more than we make the wind blow. The new birth is solely a work of God. To be born again is to bring to birth again. It's a work that a creature cannot do. Only God can do it, as Ephesians teaches us. Ephesians 2.5 Even when we were dead. you got to get that, people. Dead. Again, not mostly dead, dead. All right, I've heard it explained. Oh, you're you're really sick, and you need to take the me- the medicine of the gospel. No, you're dead. Medicine's not going to help you. We're dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So we're dead. God gives us life. And when a person is dead, he can't see. He can't feel. They say, well, they're under conviction. How much conviction does a corpse feel? Until God gives a person life, he is dead. Listen to spiritual things. Man is passive in the new birth. He does no more to produce his own birth than Lazarus did to produce his own resurrection. Believers, please understand this. The new birth is affected without means. Without any means. That means it's not about faith, it's not about you doing this, doing that. Any kind of ordinance. Anything you do. It's not about you. The new birth or regeneration is affected without means. Now most Christians think that the means of the new birth, the means of regeneration, is the Word of God or faith. We just give them the Word of God, they'll believe. If I believe that, we do a lot of physical training here, and then we go out and grab people and bring them in here and just subject them to the Word of God until they get saved. And once they got saved, they'd forgive us for kidnapping them, and everything would be all right. But it doesn't work that way. It's a direct act of God. We're dead. The new birth is affected without means. Truth can't be the means of regeneration. Because before a man is regenerated, he's blind. He can't see the truth. He's deaf. He can't hear the truth. He's dead. He can't respond to the truth. Truth cannot be the means of the new birth when the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And the increase of light will not enable a blind man to see. The disease of the eye must first be cured. So a man must be regenerated by the Spirit before he can receive truth. It's solely a work of the Spirit. Now the Greek text of 1 Peter 1.23 helps clarify the concept of regeneration without means. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now the two prepositions here, of and through, are different. The preposition of indicates the source. We are born of God. And through indicates the instrumentality. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us life so we can receive and believe the Word of God. The new birth is a direct act of God upon the spirit of man. It's a spiritual resurrection. Marines, let me ask you a question. How do you know that you've been born from above? Is there evidence to demonstrate the new birth. How do we know if anybody's been born from above? Is there evidence? 
Yeah, the evidence is in our text, okay? Everyone who believes. Oh, you believe? You know why? Because you've been born again. See, the only reason you believe is because you've been given life. And then you hear the Word of God after you've been given life, and you're like, oh my word, I believe that. That's amazing. I sat in church all my life. Dreaded every second of it. Daydream, would this guy finally shut up? You know, and boom, until I got out of there. And then, I'm at working at a foundry, and some guy comes up and gives me a chick publication track, Big Daddy. So I sit down, and it's a comic. So I figure, hey, it's cool. I'll sit down to read it. And I'm like, I got hit so hard by the Spirit of God. And I'm like, I was like, literally, what is happening to me? I mean, I, I was dramatically changed. And I'm like, okay, I started believing stuff. I started wanting to go to church. I wasn't there long to find out the reason I never heard anything there is because I weren't preaching anything there. You know, it was a Presbyterian church and it was not about the gospel or anything. I confronted the pastor about it. He's like, oh, we're a family church. We don't want to... I'm like, well, don't families need Christ? Oh, we don't want to get too into that. I'm like, okay, whatever. But the reason you believe is because you've been given life. Which means, people, that Yahweh gets all the glory for your salvation. All the glory. You play no part in the new birth. You know, God said that no flesh shall glory in His presence. But a lot of people want to glory because if you believe salvation is a work of man, then you automatically put yourself in a position of pride and you start looking down at people and you think, you know, I was a lot smarter than so-and-so. Because they don't believe the Gospel. But I was smarter. I heard it, and I believed it. That's because I'm a smarter, better person than them. Who's getting the glory there? God? No. The famous Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, you all heard of Spurgeon, right? Everybody knows about Spurgeon. People quote him often, but a lot of people don't really know what he believed, and if they did, they wouldn't like him too much. But uh, let's hear what he says about uh, salvation. He says, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It's a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Yahweh. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of His elect and chosen people which Christ brought out upon the cross. Alright, now, let me say I agree with Spurgeon here, and it's my conviction that Calvinism is the biblical gospel. I didn't always believe this. Okay, I started out probably the first five years of my Christian life, I was Arminian. And man, I hated Calvinists. They were messed up. I tell you, I fought them, you know. I just, I, I thought you were messed up. And all of a sudden, what I hated and what I fought against, I became. Because the Scripture just has a way of doing things to you when you spend time in it. You know, and that's the thing. That's why I harp so hard on you to read your Bibles. You know, make it a habit every year to read through the Bible. It's amazing what God will do with His Word in your life. I had a friend who, after I became Calvinist, he was a preacher. And uh, <laughs> so was I. And I told him, you know, I'm sharing Calvinism. I was like, that's crazy. I don't want to know that. No part of that. He made the mistake of teaching through the Gospel of John. He didn't get halfway through and he called me up. Guess what? I said, yeah, I know. You can't teach you that book without you know, dying fast on, on that whole thing. Listen, the church today is being flooded with a new gospel. It's a humanistic gospel. The gospel is always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment. It summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and grace. Its center of reference is God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. You choose. You decide. You initiate salvation. The chief aim of the gospel was to teach men to worship God. 
When you understand it is all about God, you fall on your face before God and you worship Him, you thank Him because it's all about Him. But the concern of the new gospel seems limited to making people feel better. People, the gospel is this. God saves sinners. That's the gospel. Okay? Let me break it down. God. The triune God. Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of the chosen people. The Father electing. The Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming. The Spirit executing the purpose of the Father by renewing. God. It's all about God. God does what? He saves. This means He does everything from first to last that is involved in bringing man from death to life to glory. He calls. He justifies. He sanctifies. He glorifies. God saves. Who does He save? Sinners. Men, as He finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift the finger to do God's will or better their condition. God saves sinners. That's the Gospel. So all the thanks, all the praise, all the glory go to God. Now I know that people don't like this because it kind of leaves them out. Like, what about me? What about my will? What about my choice? What about what? 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 Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to come back next week and we're going to try to answer these objections as to, you know, well, that's, you know, I think one of the biggest objections, that's not fair. No, you know what fair is? God says, I don't want anything to do with you. You're a sinner. I'm going to let you die and spend eternity without me. That's fair. This is not fair. This is grace. God says, look, I love him. Come on, be part of my family. That's amazing, people. No deservedness on our part. And listen, this is what causes us to fall on our face in worship. I don't deserve to be here. But as long as you think you did something to get here, then you feel like, okay, I kind of, you know, I did the right thing to get here. You're kind of worshiping yourself with God. No, it's all about Him. All about Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Your marvelous, incredible grace that reached out to us while we were in the pit of despair and made us Your children. Lord, you adopted us into your family. Incredible, you chose us. Lord, thank you. Help us to understand. Give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. I pray that we'd search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Amen. All right, questions, comments on this? I don't think it's new to most of you, but I know it's not an easy subject. It's because it's not something you hear too much. Gary? Well, it, it bugs me a little bit that you're so familiar with Princess Bride. <laughs> Let me tell you what. It's a great movie. That is a classic. Okay, Princess Bride. When I was in the youth department, when I was teaching the youth, somehow one of them gave me that movie. You know, got a wretched movie. Oh my word, me and my girls watched that over. We could quote it, you know. Which way is my way? You know, everything about the movie. I mean, it was just a fantastic movie, but that's always stuck with me. You know, he's only mostly dead. Uh, that's not how it works in the church. Okay? Mostly dead is somewhat alive, you know. Um, classic movie. I, 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 I really like it. Yes? Then, like you said, Armenian and Calvinism. But Armenians, they do something to help their salvation, right? They believe it's part, they have to do something. All right. Now, not actually, see this is where we get in. I don't, I think Arminian, people who are Arminian, they hold to Arminianism, I have no problem calling them brothers, okay? Like I said, I was an Arminian the first five years, but did I really believe? Yes. I just didn't understand everything, okay? I thought I made this choice because I didn't know better because I did make a choice just like you did. We all made a choice. But God did something first, okay? He gave us life, and then we heard the Word of God, and then we make that choice. So now, as a Calvinist, you just understand the correct order, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. See, they just have the order mixed up. All right, now Pelagianism is something different. But Arminians, I count them as brothers, okay? Just, they're not 
you know, understanding, I think, what the Scripture says. Because to me, this is so clear in Scripture. I mean, we could spend days going through verses, you know, that deal with the sovereignty of God. And I didn't like the sovereignty of God, okay? Because I was like, wait a second, what about me? i got to have some say in this. And God taught me that I don't have much say in anything. So, But I kind of like it that way now, you know? It's just kind of neat to... Because I know two couple things. I know God absolutely loves me because He saved me. I know He controls every event in time. And those two things, you know, He loves me and He controls everything. What, what, what more could you ask for? You know, it's just a peace that I can rest in that. Whatever happens, I'm like, well, my loving Father put me in this situation, so He must think I can handle it. He must think I need it. Amen. Hallelujah. You know what a Calvinist says when he falls down the stairs? Glad that's over. <laughs> Anybody else? Questions, comments? I didn't have to check my phone. Yes, Stanley. Uh, just one comment. Uh, a really good book on God's sovereignty, which I read a long time ago. A.W. Pink, The Sovereignty of God. Okay. Yes, okay. There's an abridged edition of that where they cut a lot of stuff out, okay, but you make sure you get the good one. That is an excellent book, The Sovereignty of God. I got to tell you, I think there's one better than that. R.C. Sproul Jr., Almighty Over All. Okay? It goes into the superlapsarian position. I mean, it is it is good, okay? Because when you come out of reading that book, you're like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, I did a study with a bunch of people who I thought were Calvinists, and we went through that book, and they were blown away, okay? Just blown away by how sovereign God actually was. So, Almighty Overall, Sproul's book, or the Pink's book is The Sovereignty of God. Yeah, Dan Harden writes, he says, uh, The kingdom of God is only achieved through Yahweh's act of drawing us, not anything we do or anything we are. God and God alone. Grace is powerful. It's all, you know, and again, it goes back to him really getting all glory for it because... Okay, here's a question. Um, I have a question regarding the need for mission work on the earth, preaching the good news. How do you see Romans 10 in light of 1 John 1, 5? The main scripture portion I'm thinking of is Romans 10. Yeah, how can they hear without a preacher? And that, that's the whole thing with Romans 10, okay? How? All right, you know you need to be saved. You have to hear the gospel before you can believe. Now listen, first you have to be born. But before you can believe... You have to hear the Word of God. You can't, okay, I'm born, I believe. Believe what? You have to hear the truth. So that's what our responsibility is. We share with other people. And when they hear the truth of God, if God has given them life, it's like an explosion takes place. It's like, oh my word. You know, because I told you what happened to me was dramatic. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I ever saw. I was so excited. And I just thought, as long as somebody hears this, they'll buy it. So I went out, I went to the gospel bookstore, I bought a ton of tracks, I brought them to my house that Friday, we, we had, we'd take turns, me and this bunch of kids, we hung around to ten of us usually, and we had kegers at different houses, so that was my week for the kegers, so we had, and I'm, everybody's drinking, and I'm walking around handing out tracks, and I'm so excited, and they're eventually reading it, and throwing it down, throwing it down, and I'm like, well, what? I remember my grandmother saying, that was the funniest thing I saw. You're out there drinking, everybody's drinking, and you're handing out tracks and preaching to everybody. I was so disappointed. I didn't get it. Why didn't they see what I saw? Why weren't they excited? Man, that was discouraging to me. You know, but they didn't get it. But people, we've got to share the gospel, because if they don't hear the gospel, they can't believe the gospel. How shall they believe who have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? So we go out and we preach. And that's how people hear the gospel and respond to it. Okay, second question. Would Yahweh choosing people to be the called and leaving others out of salvation be in line with a God who is pure love and merciful? What is your take on that? Absolutely. Those are God's attributes. He is love and He's mercy. 
He chooses, and we're going to talk about this next week. He chooses to love someone and not love someone else. You say, what gives him the right to do that? What gives him the Who does he think he is? You get how silly that question is? Who does he think he is? I think he thinks he's God. And by virtue of creation, we're, he created us. And we're going to look at that next week. The potter makes something, and does the clay pot say, Hey, hey, potter! I didn't want to be this. I wanted to be a pot, not a bowl. What are you doing with me? No, what would the, what would the potter do? Squish. We'll start over. <laughs> you, you, oh, people, that's, this is the thing. When you realize who God is, He's God. He's not subject. He's not under our control. He's not under our whim. We don't boss Him around. We don't tell Him what to do. We sovereignly bow before Him. And whatever He does, because He does it, is right and just and fair because He's the God of all justice. And knowing His attributes... And that's the thing. A lot of Christians have no clue. God, all they know is God's love. It's all love. No, He's also wrath. He's also just. We have to know all His attributes. Okay? Not just love. And I'll accept anything and everybody. If you want to understand the wrath of God, look at Calvary. You look what He did to His own Son. And you'll understand the wrath of God. Jeff? Um, about God's love and everything, all men don't deserve to go to heaven. The fact that He does love and save some is an attribute of His love. People ask that question like He's supposed to love unconditionally to everybody equally. But right. the fact that He loves shows that he, because He saves people. So doesn't mean He has to save everybody. He does not have to save everybody. You know, to be you're right. I mean, God in eternity past, laid out a plan. Alright? He chose some people to be His. He chose some not to be. Alright? This cho- this causes those who have been chosen to fall down and worship. David? Well, it's like we've said before here, you know, it's not God's love that sins, that damns people. It's His justice. We're all, see, all born sinners, so therefore all under the wrath of God. Anybody deserve to be saved? No. So out of that group, God chooses to save some. And some people don't think that's fair. Well, they're God... Could, they shouldn't save any. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, exactly. It's not fair, because none of them should be saved. People say... I heard someone say one time, I don't understand how God loved Jacob and hated Esau. You know, how could he hate Esau? And someone says, how could he love Jacob? That's the question. And that is the question. How could he love us? That's the question, not how could he not love others. That's easy. He shouldn't love anybody. The real question is, how in the world does he love us? I mean, you know us. All right? We know ourselves. Okay? I mean, just a week before someone gave me that track, I was telling jokes about, you know, Jesus can't eat M&Ms because they fall through the scars in his hands. You know? Because I didn't care about any of that stuff. And a week later, I'm on my knees like, God, whatever you want me to do, I, ooh, this is amazing. Oh, Anthony, I knew I saw I see those hands. So, um, so do you think that the ones that he chose to not to be chosen, is it a lesson for us to learn through those people that he, can we learn from those people that he didn't choose for whatever purpose that he wanted to be taught something of or about them? I think it causes us to be grateful when you look at someone and you say, that should be me. The only reason I'm a Christian is by the grace of God. You know, if they're not chosen. And here's the thing, people. Don't try to figure this out and label people. You know, Spurgeon said, you know, if you believe in election, why don't you just preach to the elect? He said, I would if God would have put an E on everybody's back. I'd go around lifting their shirts up to see if they're elect before I preach to them. We don't know. And listen, I might share the gospel with someone, and they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. I don't care anything about that. And then five years later, they become a Christian. Why? God gave him new life. I had a kid in my youth department. Okay, he came to you know we had buses. We'd go out and pick kids up and bring them in, preach the gospel. Right, this kid was plugged into the youth department. He loved being there. He loved the people. He was great with the people. He didn't have a clue about God, and it was evident. 
And I tried to talk to him. And say, okay, so I mean, he was close to us. Well, this went on for years and years, and all of a sudden, I think it was like 10 years later, he became a Christian. And I mean, just God got a hold. It was amazing. And I'm like, you know, you're thinking, he's heard the gospel all these years. Nothing. Because he hadn't had life. But then God gave him life, and boom, it exploded. And man, he just was in love with the Lord. It's all about God. Anybody else? And like I said, the reason I want to come back next week and go into this more, because I know these questions arise. You know, the main question is, that's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. Everybody should go. Everybody should go without Christ. Everybody should go into eternity without Christ. Everybody should perish. He doesn't deserve, he doesn't need, doesn't under obligation to save anybody. But he wanted to show his love and mercy, so he chose to save some. Okay, we'll go into more, and, and like I said, next week will be even maybe deeper than today as far as this goes, but I think it's important that we understand this, these concepts, and the reason is so God gets the glory. All right, so the new gospel is troublesome, people, because it's all about, it's all man-centered, and that really is scary, because this is not about man. This is about God. 